As book lovers, we all know how special it is when a book makes a major impact on you, especially if it's a book that you read when you were a kid. I think that Lois Lowry's Number the Stars was that kind of book for many, many people. Published in 1989, Number the Stars went on to win the Newbery Medal the following year and has been serving as an entry point into a scary period in history for kids ever since. More than that, it's inspired people of all ages to consider how they might be able to make a difference for the people around them in big and small ways, and how important it is to fight social injustice and hate whenever possible. On episode 159, you'll hear quite a bit about the plot of Number the Stars, but big picture, it's about a young girl named Anne-Marie, who is growing up in Copenhagen amid the Nazi occupation in the 40s. As the soldiers begin to insert themselves more and more into the daily lives of Denmark's citizens, Anne-Marie finds herself faced with the question of how to protect her best friend, Ellen Rosen, whose family is Jewish. Along with her parents, Anne-Marie discovers and demonstrates real courage in her efforts to protect many of her Jewish neighbors before they are relocated to concentration camps. On this episode, you'll hear us talk a lot about bravery, heroism, and acts of kindness. You'll hear us talk about the moments in the book that were most suspenseful and most heartwarming for us. You'll hear us talk about Number the Stars as a vehicle for Holocaust education. You'll hear us compare notes on what we learned about history, even as adults, from this book. It's a really thoughtful conversation, and I hope you enjoy it. Please note that our discussion does, of course, focus quite a bit on anti-Semitism and the Holocaust. I encourage you to listen with caution and sensitivity. On episode 159, we have a returning guest, Hannah Howard. Hannah and I met at a freelance bootcamp class in Brooklyn back in 2016, shortly after I quit my publishing job and nearly two years before SSR even became a thing. I watched from the sidelines as Hannah put her first book out into the world and was so grateful when she agreed to be a guest on one of the first ever episodes of the podcast. Now she's back. Hannah Howard is a writer and food expert who spent her formative years in New York eating, drinking, serving, bartending, cooking on a line, flipping giant wheels of cheese, and managing restaurants. She writes about delicious things, teaches food writing classes, and might just spend all day at the market. Hannah's first book, Feast, True Love in and Out of the Kitchen, debuted as Amazon's number one best-selling memoir in 2018. Her new book, Plenty, a memoir of food and family, is available on September 1st, 2021. And you should definitely check it out because it's already garnered starred reviews and grabbed the number one spot in its category on Amazon. Plus, no one writes about food like Hannah. Follow Hannah on Instagram at Hannah M. Howard and on Twitter at Hannah Howard. Thanks so much, Hannah, for joining me for a second time. What a fun full circle moment. If you've been following along with SSR since the early days, maybe even since Hannah's first episode with me, you probably know that I have a lot of full circle moments around here as the podcast and our community continue to grow and evolve. Get a front row seat for those moments on social media. We are at SSR Pod on Instagram and Twitter, and you can find the show on Facebook by searching the SSR Podcast or the SSR Podcast Community. Even more SSR Community is available to you through Patreon, a platform that connects independent creators like me with the fans of the things that they create. As a Patreon supporter, you can show your love for the show by contributing a few dollars to its production every month. You get exclusive rewards in return, things like newsletters, SSR swag, reading recap videos, and bonus episodes. You also get access to our patron-exclusive book club, SWR, also known as Shit We Read. Our September SWR pick is The Plot by Jean Hanf Korlitz, which just so happens to be the book that Hannah will recommend to you at the end of this very episode. It was meant to be. I can't wait to read The Plot, and I would love to have you join us to do the same. Learn more and become a patron at www.patreon.com slash ssrpodcast or by visiting www.ssrpodcast.com and clicking support at the top of the page. Shout out to all of the Patreon sponsors listening to episode 159. I couldn't do this without you. Please remember to leave a five-star rating or review on Apple Podcasts if you're loving what you hear on SSR and to share the podcast with friends either via social media or in real life. Word of mouth really is key for keeping the show going strong the more the merrier. I love when you show your support for the podcast, but I also love when you show your support for independent bookstores. As you may know, there is an independent bookstore getting ready to open on my literal block here in Philadelphia, and let's just say I'm kind of freaking out. But you can support indies no matter where you are, even if you don't have access to a brick and mortar store where you live. 
shop SSR's bookshop.org storefront at bookshop.org slash shop slash SSRpod for paperbacks and hardcovers. At no extra cost to you, your purchases will support this podcast as well as independent bookstores. You can also support indies when you shop for audiobooks thanks to Libro.fm. The audiobooks you get from Libro.fm are exactly the same as the ones you would buy from the big guys, and they're the same price too. SSR listeners can get a discount on their first audiobook purchase from Libro.fm. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, then use code SSRPOD when prompted on the site to get a two-month audiobook membership for the price of just one month. Now let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Ali Hofkosik, freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, Hannah. Welcome back to SSR. Hi, Allie. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, so I was looking back at my old episodes today because listeners, maybe you don't know this if you're not a long-time fan of the show, but Hannah was the guest on episode four, zero four of SSR. And not only that, but Hannah, I think you were my either my first or my second interview ever. Wow. I'm so honored. I knew it was the early days, but I didn't know it was such a milestone of early of early days. Yeah, it was early. And so first of all, I have to take a moment to thank you for believing in me and in the show very early on. And it's very exciting to have you back on now promoting your second book, which we'll talk about after we dig into Number of the Stars. But yeah, it's just really special to have you back on over three years later at this point, which I can't even believe. I can't even believe that it's been three years since we had this kind of a conversation. Yeah, it's it's so cool. And it's so cool to see how far your show has come and so much has unfolded in these three years, definitely. For both of us, for both of us. So this time around, we're talking about Number the Stars by Lois Lowry. And I have to say that over the last couple of weeks, I've been doing a lot of Babysitter's Club. We've done some Vampire Diaries. We've done some Confessions of a Teenage Drama Queen. We've done some Gossip Girl. And I've loved all of it. Don't get me wrong. But this is a little bit of a different vibe. And I'm excited about it. Like, it was really nice to come back to this kind of a book after digging into those series and those sort of like light, you know, the lighter fare over the last couple of weeks. So as always, before we get into this conversation, I'd love to hear a little bit more about why you chose this book and any personal connection or history that you have with it. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, to be, to be transparent, I was having a little bit of a, of a block choosing a book and you sent over some recommendations and this one immediately jumped out at me because I remembered it and remembered not very much about the details, but that it made a really, really big impression on my young brain and heart. And I was really curious to rediscover what it was about it that spoke so much to me. Although I was also a little bit hesitant because I did remember that it was pretty, pretty dark and pretty sad. I echo so much of that. I too remember being very impacted by this book, but I don't really, I don't think I knew why until I reread it. I remember that it was one of the first Holocaust stories that I read and that I sort of ingested, although I had learned about the Holocaust a little bit in school and also just from my family because my mom's side of the family is Jewish. And so I knew, I I sort of had a general idea of the history of the Holocaust. So this was one of the first like real like kid stories that I think I read about that time in history but I didn't really remember any of the specifics about where it takes place or about the characters. So I was really anxious to get back into it. Um, And I too was a little bit worried because I was like, I know this is going to be heavy, but it was, I have to say like at the top of the show, while it was heavy, it was also just so like, this feels like the wrong word to use, but I'm going to use it anyway. There's something about it that was just so like delightful in its heaviness, like the way that this author uses this time in history to like teach lessons about humanity and like 
I don't know, there's just something so special about the whole reading experience. I agree. And I think for me, it, it sparked, a, I had learned about the Holocaust in school too. And it seemed, you know, interesting and devastating, but so theoretical. And of course, this story really brought it home to me in a different way. And I, if I remember correctly, I think this is the one that set off a little bit of a Holocaust book rabbit hole when I was just a kid. And I, I can see how this really just captured my imagination. And it was just so vivid and moving. Did you read a lot of historical fiction when you were a kid? Did you enjoy that genre when you were growing up? I definitely went through a Holocaust book phase that Number of the Stars inspired. I don't know how much beyond that my historical fiction branched out, but there's something about it, just maybe just the, the awfulness of it really sparked something. Yeah, I get that. I actually, I've talked about this on the show before, I think, but I don't love historical fiction as an adult. I very rarely read it, but I loved historical fiction when I was growing up. It was like my favorite genre. Um, and I think series like The Royal Diaries and like Dear America really helped that along. But Number of the Stars is up there too. So I'm glad that we finally got a chance to read this for the show. A little bit of background listeners. This book was written in 1989. It was Lois Lowry's first work of historical fiction. You probably know her from like the Anastasia series and The Giver. But this is the first time she she really did research, like she really went hard in this different kind of genre. The book won the Newbery Medal in 1990, which of course means that it was considered the single best work of middle grade fiction the year before. So that's super exciting for Lois Lowry. And it was based on a true story. And I found some interesting content about where the inspiration came from. The inspiration for Anne-Marie came from Lois Lowry's friend, Annalise, who grew up in Denmark. And she gave Lois Lowry her permission to sort of ratchet up her own experience growing up in this time in history to put together this story. And so none of the like specific plot points actually happened to Annalise herself. But Peter, for example, who is Anne-Marie's like would-be brother-in-law, who is a member of the Danish resistance, like he was really clearly based on a real person and a lot of the other events that we see in this book are based on stories that Annalise told Lois Lowry when they were on a trip together to, I believe, either the Bahamas or Bermuda in 1988. Yeah. yeah, so that's where it comes from. And I found like so many interesting reviews and just like think pieces about this book, either from when it came out or around 2019 when the book celebrated its 30th anniversary. And there's one in particular that I just wanted to sort of spend a little bit of time on because it really is focusing on the challenges of writing about the Holocaust for children. And I never would have thought about this, but I guess the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum has guidelines for good Holocaust education, which makes sense, but like I never would have thought about that. And according to this journalist who's writing in the Horn book, Number of the Stars meets all of those guidelines. And those guidelines include things like there are no generalizations or stereotypes. There's good context around the history. There's no implication that the Holocaust was inevitable. There's no romanticization of history, whether that means overemphasizing heroes or luxuriating in evil. And something else that I found interesting was that the writer said, while the museum notes that dwelling on the role of rescuers can result in an inaccurate and unbalanced account of the history, the story of Denmark really is the story of rescuers. So because the story is one that's set in Denmark, it kind of gets around some of those rules, which I thought was was kind of cool. Yeah, I didn't know much about that part of the Holocaust. And it was really interesting to read. I loved the, the afterword that was at least in my edition that gave a little bit of historical context and just the, the Denmark Navy burning all of their ships so that Hitler's army wouldn't take over and all of these and smuggling thousands of, of Jews across the shore to Sweden. I didn't know slash remember that. So that was really fun and heartening to read about. Yeah, it's really fascinating. And I can't remember which of the articles I read in preparation for this. I read this nugget in, but I'll make sure that I include links to all of them in the show notes. I read somewhere that because of the Danish people's efforts to save and protect their Jewish neighbors, they managed to save all but 51 of Denmark's Jews during this period, which is wild when you think about what was going on in Europe. 
That's absolutely incredible. And it's, you, you know, I don't want to go against the, the guidelines, but it's, it's nice to hear some of this hopeful, happy story in such a dark time. Like that's really encouraging and wonderful. You go against those guidelines. <laughs> it's totally allowed. And I think the other thing that's worth mentioning, and I, again, I found this in other articles, so I'm certainly not the one who came up with it, but I think one of the reasons that that Number of the Stars is a really helpful entry point to this historical period for children is that it is set in Denmark. And so it gives kid readers who maybe haven't been exposed to the atrocities of the Holocaust a chance to begin to understand what was going on in Europe at large from a bit of a distance and at the same time manages not to like hide the truth about what was going on because it's very upfront about what's going on with the Nazis as they begin to occupy the entire continent. But because we're talking about a girl living in Denmark and not a girl living in Germany or Poland, for example, I just, I think that maybe that's part of why it was received so well as a starting point for kids. Yeah, that was one of the biggest questions I just had for myself as I set about to read this book was how do you tackle such a heavy, intense topic when you're writing for kids? And I felt like there was, at some points, there was a little bit of remove and distance and at other points, there wasn't at all. And it was completely upfront. And it was, it felt like that felt like a really good balance to me, like a really careful balance. And it wasn't like shying away from things that were scary and devastating, but it also like didn't linger, linger there in a way like the, the focus came back to this courage and friendship and hope without sugarcoating the dark stuff. Yeah. And it's specific to this one family and this one little girl and her friendship. And it makes me think of that saying that people that I've heard a lot of a lot about writing, which is that like the specific is often the general, right? So like in this story, we're getting this very specific experience about Anne Marie and her best friend, Ellen and their families. But somewhere in there is this like general experience of the Danish people in 1943. Yeah. I love that. I've heard that as sort of a a creative writing maxim, like, right? Like if you want to make a big statement or touch a lot of people, get really nitty gritty into the details. And I feel like, right, this book is a beautiful example of that. And it's true that, I mean, I was moved to tears and it, and it wasn't about millions of people, right? It's about um, this friendship between these two girls. And there were these little moments like, there's a, a a mom and her baby that also escape on the on the boat with them. You know, the the mom doesn't want to drug the baby so that the baby won't cry and risk giving them away, but she has to. And and just these little little moments just felt so visceral and like little daggers into the heart. As a mom, especially too, I'm sure, but also as a human, like it's it's a universal experience of like, oh, it's it's just wild to think that this is something that you would even have to consider. Right, exactly, on both levels. So before we get into the specifics, the specifics of Anne-Marie, because I really am anxious to talk about her, I, I wanted to speak about the introduction that I had in my edition. And it sounds like we read the same edition based on what you told me about the afterword that you had in your book. But Lois Lowry did write a beautiful introduction to this edition. And listeners, I'm sorry if there's any page turning, but something that struck me about this introduction from Lois Lowry is just how much like credit she gives her young readers. And I'm always so impressed by that because I have now read so many of these books as an adult myself. It's always clear to me when an author like really has respect for the kids that they're writing for. And you sense that in this introduction from Lois Lowry. She talks about kind of like the morality of children and the fact that at the age of 10, kids like Anne-Marie, who is 10 in this book, are beginning to come to a point in their life where they want to understand how to do what's right. And I'll just read this one quote. She writes, and 10, the age of Anne-Marie and number the stars and the approximate age of most of the book's readers is an age when young people are beginning to develop a strong set of personal ethics. They want to be honorable people. They want to do the right thing. And they're beginning to realize that the world they live in is a place where the right thing is often hard, sometimes dangerous, and frequently unpopular. Like, she couldn't be more explicit about the fact that she gives her readers a lot of credit. Absolutely. Yeah, it's it's kind of amazing. And, and I think, too, it's kind of 
challenging to write, even for kids, or maybe especially for kids, any kind of morality tale without sounding preachy and cheesy. And she really pulls it off. I I think one of the things that I liked about Anne-Marie's courage is that she, early on in the book, there's a moment where she doesn't know how brave she is. And she questions whether she really would have the courage if necessary. And I think that makes it feel so real and relatable that this little little heroic girl is kind of grappling with these big things that's not doesn't necessarily just come easy for her. Absolutely. And something that I found in a few of the reviews I read was that like Anne-Marie's acts of bravery and heroism throughout the book are small. Like she's not an outsized hero. It feels like she's making these small like baby steps of courage that really do like come together to make a big difference. But there's something about that that I think is really special too, because I feel like kids are used to reading about heroes in a specific way. And they're often like grand and over the top. And that's really cool to read as a kid. But Anne-Marie is like you said, like she's not even sure if she's brave. And then once she realizes that she is brave, the brave acts that she's committing are small enough that like any kid could make a stab at them. And that's so cool. Yeah, there there are like little little these little life moments that become really meaningful and significant. Yes. It's just so I, I love it. Even as I talk about it with you now again, I'm like, this book is the best. Okay. So let's ground ourselves a little bit more in the story because I just want to get into the details. So this book is set in 1943 in Copenhagen. And by all accounts, both in this book and in the research that I did on my own. While the Nazis were occupying Copenhagen at this time, for several reasons, they were being a little bit kinder to the Danish people than they were to people in many other countries. While Anne-Marie is aware that the Nazis are around, even at the beginning of this book, she really doesn't seem to feel that they're affecting her life in any meaningful way. Like We sort of meet her right at that turning point. I thought of it partially as the childhood like very narrow view of the world that revolves around her. Like she does notice that her her moms are drinking some herb concoction instead of their usual coffee. And of course we meet them in the beginning when they stop her and Ellen who are having a race down the street. So I feel like there's, they're kind of right around the edges in this menacing way, but maybe not in the center of her world. And I was thinking maybe just because her world is the 10-year-old world. And so probably, right, her school, her friends, her mom and dad, those are the big parts of her life. Yeah. And her sister, Kirsty, like truly has no idea what's going on because her sister, Kirsty, is five. And so she really doesn't know anything different than having Nazi soldiers occupying their home. I do think you're right. Like, and maybe I'm selling Anne-Marie a little bit short. She does seem to see that there are these small changes. But I think she can tell the difference between like her perception of the city and Kirsty's perception of the city. Like she knows that Kirsty is maybe like a little bit too comfortable with the way things are in 1943. Absolutely. Kirsty is a kind of contrast to her and, and right, just living in this naive little kid bubble. Yes. And they did have a third sister and the story behind their third sister unfolds throughout the story. I'm not 100% sure how we pronounce her name. It's spelled L-I-S-E. I guess Lisa, maybe Lisa. I, I'm not quite sure. Lisey? It was Lise in my head, but I have no authority on Danish, <laughs> so I don't know. All right, let's call it Lise because that does sound, that's a, that's pretty. I like that. Lise Johansson. So Lise was older than Anne-Marie and she passed away shortly before she was set to get married to Peter, who I mentioned earlier as a member of the Danish resistance, spoiler alert, who has survived Lise and, or Lise. See, I already, I'm already messing mm-hmm. up my own pronunciations. He was set to marry Lise and all that Anne-Marie really knows about Lise's death is that she was hit by a car and her parents never talk about it. And it's just this like big family secret, which like I get that would be very difficult to talk about. And it was, it just seems like all the more tragic because Anne-Marie's last memories of Lise are of her like getting ready for her wedding and dancing. And it just seemed like it was this really happy time that was cut short. Absolutely. And I thought it was interesting, too, how even though, like you mentioned, Anne-Marie's world still feels relatively 
from what we know, unaffected by the Nazi occupation, there still is this darkness and loss and grief that is part of her life, even from such a young age. And I think it just makes her feel really relatable. Yeah, she's been aware, like she's had bad things happen to her from a very early age. Like she knows, she knows grief and she knows trauma, unfortunately. Right. And her family and and this friendship that we have do feel really loving and kind and positive, but there's still this thread of something else that she's experienced. Yes. So when the book opens, she is with Kirsty, her younger sister, and also her best friend, Ellen Rosen. And I think that Lois Lowry did like, I wonder now what an editor would think about the like clues that, that Lois Lowry provided early on that Ellen is Jewish in the book. You know, to me now, it's like it, it verges a little bit on tokenization or stereotyping. I'm not quite sure what the right phrase is, but it's like, Ellen had dark hair. Ellen's hair was very curly and thick. There are a couple of moments where, like, again, I think it it worked in 1989 and it it works now, but I'm not quite sure how that would translate to an editor in 2021. I had those same thoughts, but then I also don't know very much. I mean, I mean, I wonder if there, if there is much of a Jewish population in Denmark today, I'm pretty sure the answer is no. And it was really interesting to think about Jewish life in Copenhagen in the in the early 20th century. Yeah, you certainly don't think about there being a large Jewish population in Scandinavia right. today. Right. But that's I don't know much about it either. So maybe that could be a little bit more research on my end to follow up. But when Ellen and Anne-Marie and Kirstie are walking home, I believe from school, they have their first like really scary run in with Nazi soldiers. As I mentioned earlier, Anne-Marie is aware, of course, that the city has been occupied, but it doesn't really seem like she's had any notable interactions with the soldiers before. And this is the first time that she seems like really scared by the way that they speak to her. They seem really suspicious of Ellen in particular, which of course is another clue um, to the fact that, you know, even though the author doesn't come right out and say in the first few pages of the book that Ellen is Jewish, the way that the soldiers are speaking to her, it's very like clear, especially I think to an adult reader. And then there's a moment where the soldiers talk to Kirsty and they're like, oh, you look like my little girl, like your blonde hair is so pretty. You look just like my daughter. And I was like, oh, no. Yeah, it's pretty terrible. And I and I found myself at that moment early on in the book thinking, no, just, you know, these guys are are bad news. Yes. And seeing them through the eyes of these children, it's just, I think it makes it even harder to process because like we said earlier, like Kirsty doesn't know any different. Anne-Marie like kind of knows that they're bad, but doesn't know the full extent of what they're doing. And all that is about to be revealed because things start to happen pretty quickly from there. They go home, they tell their moms what happened. Ellen's mom especially is rightfully very worried Um, And they basically are like, you guys have to be more careful when you're out. You can't be having these conversations with soldiers. Kirsty, you especially need to just like chill a little bit because Kirsty isn't afraid. And so Kirsty is like very quick to converse with soldiers and doesn't really have much of a filter. And then Anne-Marie starts to notice that Jewish owned stores in the area are being closed. And Peter, because he's still kind of like tied into the family, he is the one who informs the Johansons, Anne-Marie's parents, that this is like the next step that the Nazis are taking, which is to shut down businesses that are run by Jewish people. Um, He indicates that this is something that other that has been done in other countries, and that this is like the first kind of step in the next stage of the occupation. And of course, like Anne-Marie struggles to understand this because she's 10. And like, why would anybody do this? Why would anybody call a certain group of people out? And she has this like beautiful reflection about this story that I'm struggling to, to give full justice to in the space of this podcast. But basically, there's this sort of like legend among the Danish people about their king and how the people of Denmark love him so much that like they all think of themselves as his bodyguard. And Anne-Marie says, now I think that all of Denmark must be bodyguard for the Jews as well. I really felt that line give a little spark when I read it too. And then when I learned later about just how many Jews were protected by the Danes during the Holocaust, it felt even more incredible. Like, right, these little moments of beauty 
amidst just darkness and pain, um, for sure. Yeah, and it inspires Anne-Marie to do some thinking. It's kind of like the first moment where she really is doing self-reflection, I think, in this book, and that happens many times. I pulled out this one passage that says, Anne-Marie remembered how her father had said three years before that he would die to protect the king, that her mother would too. And Anne-Marie, seven years old, had announced proudly that she also would. Now she was 10, with long legs and no more silly dreams of pink-frosted cupcakes. And now she and all of the Danes were to be bodyguard for Ellen and Ellen's parents and all of Denmark's Jews. Would she die to protect them? Truly, Anne-Marie was honest enough to admit there in the darkness to herself that she wasn't sure. It's so heavy. It's so heavy. It's like beautiful and so deeply sad that, I mean, I am 33 years old and I want some pink frosted cupcakes. And yet her dreams have been so ruined by this world that she lives in that she doesn't even have those pink frosted cupcakes dreams anymore. Now it's about life and death. Right. She's having to ask herself these questions. Yeah. It's, it's really, it's really heartbreaking. Yes. I I also have to take a moment to say that I love her parents so much. They might be my favorite kidlet parents of all time, at least right now. I think they're fantastic. I, I love the way that they speak to the children. I love the way they are kind of giving them just enough information while also empowering them in all the right ways. They kind of are like, so guess what? Ellen's going to come sleep over. They are so impressive. I I felt the same way. I was like, wow, they're, and and they seem to just know like the right thing to do and the right thing to say, to be um, like appropriate for a kid, but never patronizing. Never patronizing. They're trying to make things not scary, but they're also like not sugarcoating what's going on. And I also like, I don't want to make too many assumptions, but just based on what I know about kind of the trajectory and like the timeline of most people's lives at this time, like these people were probably in their mid thirties. So they're handling a lot at like a fairly young age relative to a lot of parents in 2021. Yeah, right. Their, their world is and their country and their lives are in danger and they lost their daughter which i think is probably the biggest tragedy that anyone can experience and there's so much more tragedy unfolding around them and yet they do really seem to build this home full of courage and love and integrity and yeah they kind of feel like role models to to me as a new parent yeah so basically the the latest news after the shops being closed is that Anne-Marie's father comes home and he says, This morning at the synagogue, the rabbi told the congregation that the Nazis have taken the synagogue lists of all the Jews, where they live, what their names are. Of course, the Rosens were on that list. And as a reminder, the Rosens, that's Ellen's family, along with many others. They plan to arrest all the Danish Jews. They plan to take them away. And we have been told that they may come tonight. So this is the news that Anne-Marie's papa brings home. And they, they don't really know what it means at this point for the Jews to be, quote, relocated. And of course, now we know that the plan was to bring all of these Jewish people to concentration camps and murder them. But these people don't know. They don't know what it means to just see their friends and neighbors being rounded up. And Anne-Marie's parents decide that they are going to take Ellen in for the night while her parents kind of disappear and and wait it out. There is a larger plan, but Anne-Marie doesn't know what that is in the moment. And right now they're just having a sleepover. Yeah, and I I feel like they are kind of growing up so fast here because even just a few pages ago in the beginning of the book, right, we were saying that there was not so much of their life that had been affected and now they're they're in danger and, you know, they're told they're supposed to have a sleepover, but they, they know that it's something bigger going on and way more serious than that. And um I just love, right? I love that the father can can keep it so positive and loving. Yes, I agree with all of that. And the soldiers do end up coming to the apartment in the middle of the night. And there's so much quick thinking that goes on in these interactions. So Anne-Marie is aware enough of what's going on to realize that Ellen should take off her Star of David necklace. And when Ellen can't get it off quickly enough before the soldiers arrive, Anne-Marie just reaches over and like rips it off. A little moment of heroism that I just thought was incredible and just so impactful. 
Yeah, I think that's like the big first moment where we see her like really kind of step up and save the day. And it just comes across so clearly that she cares about this friend really deeply. And it's just really moving. I was like, go Anne Marie. (laughs) Yeah, go, go Anne Marie. You got this. And then her father has equally quick thinking when the soldiers are questioning them about Ellen's hair again with her hair. They're like, why does she have dark hair when everybody else in your family has blonde hair? And conveniently, Anne-Marie's older sister, Lise, had dark hair when she was a baby. And so Anne-Marie's father thinks to grab a photo album off the shelf and he identifies like this old photo of Lise as a baby with dark hair. And he like rips the the date off the bottom of it and hands it to the soldier and is like, no, this is Lise. Like, that's that's Lise pretending that it's Ellen. But because there's no date on it, like, the soldier can't question him about the fact that Ellen is, like, much younger than Lise would have been had she lived. So this family is just, like, quick. Yes, and all of these moments are pretty scary. It could have gone either way at any of these times. And I just felt myself so on the edge and breathing a big sigh of of relief at, at all these times. Like, Ooh, um, it just felt like such a close call over and over again. Yeah, there were a few other close calls after that. The next morning, Anne-Marie's mom decides or announces that she's going to be taking the children on a train to her brother Henrik's house by the sea. And it's a big deal because she's going to be traveling without Anne-Marie's father. But they're worried that if he's traveling on a weekday, that will kind of draw unnecessary attention. And on the train, of course, they're questioned again by soldiers. And now we think that Kirsty is going to be the one to blow the whole thing up. And I actually was like very concerned because Kirsty has learned that it is the Jewish New Year. Like she learned this from Ellen. And I'm sure as a five-year-old, she feels very smart. But when the Nazis, the Nazi soldiers are asking the women about why they're traveling and they're like, oh, is this a holiday? Is this your New Year? And Anne-Marie's mom is like, no, the New Year is in January. What are you talking about? And Anne-Marie is so worried that Kirsty's going to bust out this new knowledge that she has about the Jewish New Year. And I really did think, I really thought that Kirsty was going to mess it up in that moment. Me too. I was definitely at the edge of my seat. But she doesn't, and they make it safely to Henrik's house. And much is made of the fact that you can see Sweden from Henrik's house, because I guess on the other side of the of the sea is Sweden. And so I'm like, hmm, this is going to be important. The author is making it very clear that Sweden is going to play an important part in what's going to happen next. And the girls get settled. Anne-Marie is very familiar with this house because it's her family's home. She's spent a lot of time there. But what she's not familiar with is the name Great Aunt Bertie. And her mother announces that Great Aunt Bertie has passed away and that they're going to have a funeral. And Anne-Marie's like, hold on. I know that we don't have a Great Aunt Bertie. I've never heard this name before. And she questions Henrik about it. And Henrik is definitely like the cool uncle which I appreciated, like he's younger and he kind of is like out on his own fishing and doing his own thing. And she pushes him on like who this mysterious great Aunt Bertie is. And he explains to her that sometimes it's easier to be brave when you don't know the full truth about something. What's your take on that, Hannah? I loved that part because we really see those wheels turning in Anne-Marie's brain that things are not adding up and they're not as they seem. And... I feel like Henry has such a good answer for her that, I mean, I think she does know quite a lot. Like she knows they're on the run. She knows there are these evil occupying soldiers they have to hide from. And, you know, maybe, maybe that's enough. Um, And then of course, as the book unfolds, we learn kind of with her more about the purpose of the great aunt Bertie story. But I think it's like very impressive that not only can she be so brave in all these little moments that actually are big, but that she can be so accepting of what's going on around her, even though it must feel so strange and confusing. Yeah, disorienting. Like she's in this very familiar place, but nothing about what's going on is familiar. Right. And she knows she's being lied to. And I think she also says that her family her parents don't lie so she she knows something is yeah off yeah these are definitely parents that much like Lois Lowry like have a lot of respect for young people and it seems like they don't lie so I like that Anne-Marie knew that something funny was clearly going on but the purpose of the whole Aunt Birdie story was that they're going to bring in this casket 
And the casket is actually full of blankets and coats. And so all of these mourners pile into the home. And it turns out that all of these mourners are Jewish people that the resistance is going to be smuggling into Sweden before they can be relocated um, and murdered by the Nazi soldiers. Um, And of course, there's another run in with the Nazis. They bust into the funeral. They question Anne-Marie's mother. They try to get her to open the casket. And in another moment of quick thinking, Anne-Marie's mother is like, I mean, I can open the casket, but my great aunt Bertie had typhus. And so we would just like release the germs. But if you say so, which was a huge gamble because they could have had her open it. And in the end, they like smack her in the face, which is horrible, obviously, but they do that because they're like, don't you dare open that casket. So her gamble paid off and they leave without looking any further into what's going on. I think that was the close call where I had the most stress. I I felt like, oh, they're surely gonna gonna open it because it was suspicious. The the other Aunt Birdie or the other reason for the Aunt Birdie story was that people weren't supposed to be gathering, right, in groups. And so it was a good excuse for that exception. And it just, it almost felt to me like, okay, these Nazis, they know they're on to them. So Anne Marie's mom really saved the day. Yeah. So once the soldiers are gone, they get all of these alleged mourners to put on these coats and these blankets. Hannah, you mentioned the story about the family with the baby who is struggling with the reality of the fact that they have to drug their baby so that she doesn't cry while they're crossing over the water. But they get them all set to go and Anne-Marie's mother and Henrik take them out to Henrik's boat. And Anne-Marie has this like really long period of time where she doesn't know where her mother is. She's had to say goodbye to Ellen. Ellen's been reunited with her parents, which is like a beautiful moment. But now Anne-Marie has had to say goodbye to her mother, to Ellen. And she's like left alone in this house with Kirsty, And she has no idea what's going on or when anybody's going to come home. In the morning, she wakes up and she sees that her mom is laying on the ground outside. And I was like, oh, no, I can't deal with something having happened to her mother. But her mom is moving. She's injured her ankle and she just like can't get back inside. And this very important little packet has been dropped. And Anne-Marie overheard her uncle telling Mr. Rose and Ellen's father that this like mysterious packet was absolutely necessary in order for them to escape. So Anne-Marie is realizing that her mom isn't well enough to bring this packet to the boat. And so she takes it on on her own. And this is like her real moment. I think the kind of moment that Lois Lowry is referring to in that introduction where it's like, this is the moment where she's choosing between right and wrong and like doing what she feels is the ethical thing at the time, even though she's 10 years old. Yeah. And she doesn't have to even, there's no doubt on her part. There's just, she just knows kind of what to do. I feel like her instinct is amazing and she just, like, she just makes a run for it and, Another go Anne-Marie go moment. I was just so impressed with her. Yeah, it's a call back to the beginning of the book too, where we find out that she's a fast runner. Thanks Lois Lowry for giving us that little hint early on. And she runs through the woods in the dark to find her uncle's boat. And I feel like a broken record, but she does have another encounter with the soldiers who are asking why she's out on her own so early in the morning. And she does a pretty good job of keeping her cool while these soldiers are interrogating her. They even like take things out of her basket. They even open the packet. That is the whole reason that she is traveling on her own back to Uncle Henrik's boat. And she's like, I don't even I don't even know what's in there because even the soldiers are like, this is just a handkerchief. Like, why is why do you have to bring this to your uncle? They even make fun of the handkerchief like it's some sort of girly accessory. And why does he need it as a manly fisherman? Right. So we got some toxic masculinity happening there, which feels like it makes sense given who we're dealing with. And I actually that the handkerchief itself, which we find out later on, is a really interesting piece of history that I had never heard of before. So I guess there were scientists, I'm not sure in what country, but scientists engineered this mix of rabbit blood and cocaine that would then be put onto handkerchiefs. The rabbit blood would draw dogs in because most of these soldiers that were hunting people down traveled with dogs and there were dogs with the soldiers that Anne-Marie meets in the woods. So the dogs would be like drawn into the handkerchief by the smell of the rabbit's blood, but then the cocaine would completely mute their sense of smell. And so they wouldn't actually be able to sniff out any of the people being smuggled out of the country. That's fascinating. 
I had no idea too. And I, I, I was like, really? As I, as I read this thinking, it kind of sounds like fiction, but it's not, which is so cool. Yeah, sometimes reality is even crazier than fiction. But Anne-Marie makes it happen. She gets the handkerchief to her Uncle Henrik so that the dogs, should they come, won't be able to locate the Jewish people who are hiding in the compartment under Uncle Henrik's boat. And Ellen and her family and all of the other people that are being helped by the resistance are able to get to Sweden safely. And it's just like, it's it's clear that Anne-Marie has made a very tangible effect on this effort. Yeah, I think they even say that they wouldn't have been able to do it without her because, right, the dogs came by to sniff and they would have found the escapees. And so Anne-Marie really does save the lives of not only her best friend, but a whole bunch of people. Yeah, and Henrik says to her outright, like, you saved her life. You will get to reunite with her someday. And without you, who knows if that would have been possible. And I get chills even thinking about that now. And I like the fact that we get a sense of there being at least a happy ending for these people. As we mentioned, the Danes were responsible for saving so many Jewish people during this time in history. They also took care of their homes, which I thought was really special. Like there's all of this talk at the end of the book about how like all of these apartments are being cleaned and tended by the people who are left behind. And so when the Jewish people are able to return, they have homes to return to that are like taken care of. And Marie does get to reunite with Ellen in the end. And so while, of course, there are just like countless atrocities and murders that take place during this time period in other parts of Europe, and it doesn't take away what does happen, I do think this is like a really fascinating little pocket of history that even now, all of these years after reading Number of the Stars for the first time, I feel like I wasn't super aware of. Yeah, I, lo- I thought the part about these Danes tending to their friends' apartments and cleaning them and keeping them nice was just such a testament to the power of friendship and community. And these people really were there for each other in these like the these big outwardly heroic ways. And then in these little, I'm going to clean their house ways, which also is really incredible. Yeah, it's like the full rounded picture of like humanity. It's it's not just like doing the big things to help somebody, but it's also the little things that make people feel like they have their dignity and their comfort and respect. And I thought that that was, it was just nice to see that. Yeah, and it was it was just so so moving at the end, right? This this celebration because ultimately they you know won this war but it was uh, darkened and bittersweet by all the people they lost like as we we as um i don't want to give away the end but no that's okay we can spoil it it's it's a 30 year old book but yeah we find out peter unfortunately has been killed in the resistance and lise was also a member of the resistance and the reason that she was killed by a car was because people were after her knowing that she was part of these efforts. Yeah, so it makes everything that has just unfolded in the book feel like all that more powerful and resonant because Lisa's memory was was part of that. And it almost felt like it was the the family's action was, was honoring Lisa's bravery. Yeah. Oh, this book is so beautiful. Um, Hannah, you're a returning guest, so you know what's coming next. But on the whole, how do you think Number of the Stars held up to your memories of it? I loved it even more than I remembered. I, I only remembered, right, like an abstract, like I liked this book. And it was really a joy to read. I mean, I was mo- I was crying at, at certain points and didn't want to put it down. So I, I would say it exceeded my expectations. I feel the same. I want to read it again. I, I would read it again. Yeah. I'm ready to read it again. I thought it was so special. Um, and I just, I loved reading about why educators and critics feel that it is so important for kids and sort of why it's different than other historical fiction and why it is such a suitable primer to this period of history for children. So I feel like I actually want to dive into even more about it because the sort of surface of it that I was able to scratch before you and I chatted today was so interesting. But um, listeners, again, I will include links to everything that I found in the show notes for this episode in case you want to go check it out. But other than Number of the Stars, Hannah, what have you been reading lately that you would recommend to our listeners? 
I just finished a really juicy novel called The Plot. Hold on, I'm forgetting the name of the um, author. The Plot is by, by Jean Hanf Korolitz, and it's about a creative writing teacher who steals the idea of one of his students and goes on to become a big deal, and there's like lots of dark twists, and I feel like I haven't read anything so like kind of fun for a while. And I just, I really, really enjoyed this novel. You're the second SSR guest who's recommended that to me recently. So I really need to maybe bump it to the top of my TBR. I I think it's just, it's just so fun. Like it's, it's, it's hard to not enjoy it. Okay. Well, I'm going to move it up on my list, but another book that our listeners should add to their list is your new book, Hannah, Plenty, which is coming out September 1st. Can you take a couple of minutes and maybe pitch it to us, share a little bit about the experience of writing it and what you're most excited about? Absolutely. So my new book is called Plenty, A Memoir of Food and Family. And it does have kind of two parts to the story. One is finding my um, community of women in the food world. So there's a chapter about a cheesemaker, a chef, a barge pilot, um, different women doing cool things uh, in food and hospitality. And then the other part of the story is about me falling in love with my husband and starting my own little family at home. There's, uh, you know, and then as I was writing the book, the COVID pandemic began. And so the end is kind of about the story of how that is affecting these women in the food world and how that also played out in my own birth and and pregnancy story. I had the chance to read Plenty a few months ago, which was really special. My favorite chapter is the one about the barge pilot. I thought she was so cool and what she was doing was so interesting, but there are so many beautifully written stories in this book. I was a huge fan of Feast, your first book, and I'm also a fan of Plenty. So Listeners, I would highly suggest that you go check out Plenty, especially if you love food writing and memoir. So Hannah, I'm so excited for you about your new book, and I can't wait to share it with more members of the SSR community. Thank you so much. Thank you for reading it and about your kind words, and thank you for having me on your wonderful podcast. Of course. Thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Bye. Bye. SSR is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR Podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind-the-scenes inside scoop, and some good old-fashioned book talk. Find us at SSR Pod on Instagram and Twitter and search SSR Podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hellossrpod at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast.